Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. I am your host, Taylor Hillman, and we have a great episode for today. We'll have an update on some sting nematode research and also some exciting news on a new grant that was uh, received by the university. And they're looking at some um, food safety concerns in relation to COVID-19. Exciting episode. But we begin, as always, with Dr. Michael Rogers Center Director um, for the Citrus Research and Education Center. Uh, Dr. Rogers, first of all, welcome. All right. Thank you, Taylor. We are talking today, uh, getting a little bit update on some other research as well. Uh, the first of all being uh, big news, uh, some sequencing for, for rootstock. Uh, exciting news here. Explain this a little bit. Okay. Yes, Taylor. Uh, recently, uh, we have just released, uh, our, our faculty have published a new paper on uh, trifoliate orange rootstock. And they have actually done a very in-depth uh, genomic sequence of this, this rootstock uh, that's commonly used in Florida as a rootstock um, throughout the state. More than 80% of, of our top varieties are, are grown on uh, trifoliate orange rootstock. And so uh, Dr. Zinao Deng and uh, Dr. Fred Gemitter, uh, these are two UF faculty members that uh, our listeners are probably familiar with. Uh, collaborated with researchers in California uh, to do a very high-quality, in-depth genomic analysis of trifoliate orange. And and this is going to be the first uh, sequence of a citrus variety, if you will, um, that really gives us uh, the information we need to develop more efficiently uh, new plant material that's resistant uh, to z- diseases as well as insects. That's exciting. It's a it's a tool that will help you guys also develop um, other sequences that researchers can then use to do some of this gene editing quicker, right? Yes, and and again, in back to trifoliate orange hybrids, um, we there are a number of those of hybrid rootstocks that are used in Florida. Um, that are very popular among our growers. And um, to be able to do this kind of work, uh, to develop new uh, rootstocks that are resistant to disease or insects, uh, nematodes, for example, they're going to have to resequence all those different rootstocks. But this this first uh, sequence they've done for trifoliate orange is really going to be, sets the background to speed up and make that additional sequencing of those other uh, rootstocks possible in a much more timely and efficient manner. And so these, these really will have a lot of utility for our, for our industry, um, allowing us, again, uh, to look at moving genes into those rootstocks for resistance to a number of diseases. Um, you know, we're really hyper-focused right now on citrus screening, but, but there's other opportunities out there as well for things like citrus stasivirus, which has you know been a problem for us in the past and continues to be in some cases uh, in Florida, um, but also nematodes, which we'll talk about nematodes later on in the episode. Uh, you know, developing re- better resistance and rootstocks to nematodes. So there's a lot of opportunities, and so we're really excited that some of, of some of the opportunities this op- opens up for our uh, researchers uh, in the future. You talked about the complexity of these sequences too. We've we've had some sequences um, on other rootstocks, but there's gaps or incomplete sequencing. And the fact is that this new one uh, is really complete. It's it's a well done sequence. Yes, and the technology that's being used today to do this. Uh, this was done in conjunction with 
a group out of California. It was a, a joint genome uh, institute from the U.S. Department of Energy and, and, and Berkeley. Um, they can really go a lot deeper and get more complete genome sequences because um, the, the best sequence we've had for a citrus variety previously was for Clementine. That was done a number of years back. And um, there were some gaps in that, that genome sequence. And so when we have researchers that are trying to, to use those sequences to do gene editing, when you have little gaps or holes in the sequences, it really slows down the progress. Uh, you know, they end up having some missing areas and they're not able to, to make as um, good of progress as they would like. And so using this new technology uh, that our folks at UF are collaborating with folks in California on, we're really able to put out some really high quality genome sequences now. Um, that's really going to be the future uh, for our industry in terms of developing new varieties. And it's not just gene editing, but there's other things when, when they're doing breeding and making crosses, they can actually select um, uh, certain varieties, new varieties, when they know the genome sequence to, to identify, that have genes that are of interest. And even conventional breeding is going to um, be benefited by this information. That's exciting news. We we uh, were looking on the website. We also noticed that there's uh, several other projects on the website. Uh, you wanted to highlight a couple of those? We have a number of other research projects obviously going on in IPIS. Uh, there's a lot of projects that are funded through the Citrus Research and Development Foundation, and um, they provide routine updates on their, on the CRDF website where you can see progress on a number of research projects going on. Um, but at UF, we also uh, have legislative funds that come to, to fund citrus research. And we uh, have put together on our website, uh, citrusresearch.ifis.ufl.edu, our website. If you'll go to the resources tab, we have a, a link where we have a report that we've just put out on um, the work that's been done using the legislative funding um, in this past year. This is the work that was done 2018-2019. And um, if, if people are interested in learning about the other projects that are going on that aren't directly related to CRDF, we have a summary of those projects online. There's about 12 different research projects going on. Um, this covers a number of things like work that we're doing using gene editing, um, work on, on citrus fruit drop, um, work on like the homobrosinolide project people have heard us talk about or, you know, antibiotic research. So there's a number of things on that website. If people want to get just a snapshot of what all else is going on, um, they can go and have a look at that report. And again, that's for the 2018-2019 season. And right now we're in the process of developing the 2019-2020 report, which will be out, if not later this fall or early in the spring. And so uh, we're doing what we can to try to keep all that information out there so growers know what's going on and uh, can see the, the progress that's being made uh, in research right now. Because even though we've got COVID out there that's causing, you know, changing the way we do things, we're still making progress in research and there's a lot happening. And, and we want folks to be aware of, of all the good things that are going on in research and advances that are being made. No, that's a nice document you guys have online. Uh, it, it's very digestible. It's got the headline. It's got who's working on it. Shows uh, impact, right? It pulls out the impact that this study has and then goes into two or three paragraphs. Uh, again, very digestible. And you can find that at the uh, crec.ifis.ufl.edu under the resources tab. Uh, again, that's a very nice uh Nice addition to have that to the website. Um, 
we you want to encourage people to use this website. There's a lot of your guys's information on here, both the legislative funding, but also what you guys are doing there um, outside of that too. Yes, and we're trying to make this uh, website. You know, this is something we developed um, over a year ago, um, and we've just. Uh, I think in the last episode I mentioned we've really been working to try to revamp the website, make it more user friendly, get new information on this. So we're trying, we want it to be kind of the first place that growers go if they want information. And then we'll link to other sources as well, not just our own information. But, um, but we've got information on the research that's, that's happening, um, things, links to guides like the, the citrus production guide, the nutrition guide. Uh, we're putting uh, research presentations that are given um, at meetings around the state on here as well. So if, if a grower missed a presentation or wants to review something, they can go online here and find that. And we're just trying to put as much on there as we can. And, and we're always open to improving this and, and adding more information. Um, uh, so anytime that, that there's ideas that folks have, they just reach out to us, let us know, because we're always interested in, in putting more and more on here that, that folks are going to find um, useful or helpful. And because, uh, again, we want this to be something that everybody uh, finds uh, helpful as, as they search for information. Definitely a good resource. Again, crec.ifas.ufl.edu. UF IFAS Citrus Research and Education Center Director, Dr. Michael Rogers. Thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you again, Taylor. We're now joined by UF IFAS Citrus Research and Extension Center food science professor, Dr. Michelle Daniluk. Dr. Daniluk, good news here today is why we're talking. You guys received a USDA grant and you're working with a team of researchers to identify some information in regards to COVID-19. This involves food and food packaging. It's really exciting research, really timely research. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. That's right. Uh, I am working with a team of researchers uh, from University of Florida, North Carolina State University, Rutgers University, and then uh, University of Nebraska. And we were just recently awarded uh, a rapid response grant from USDA uh, to, to look at um, look at SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19 uh, within the food industry. Um, really to look at data gaps and, and how to impact behavior. And so I think you you classified right on when when the, the pandemic started back in, in March and April. Um, you know, there was a lot of a lot of panic about, oh my gosh, is this foodborne? Can this be spread by food packaging? Uh, do I need to worry about bringing my groceries into the house? Uh, you know, is there transmission by food or, or food packaging? Uh, and so working with this, this team of researchers, we really um, have established this grant to really try to prove the negative, um, you know, that, that it's not spread by food or food packaging. And I think one of the things that FDA and CDC um, and even the World Health Organization have continued to say is that there's, there's no epidemiological evidence that the virus is spread by food or food packaging. Um, but epidemiological evidence isn't the same as, as hard data, as hard science data. So what we are trying to do from a research point of view on this grant is to really quantify um, understanding virus potential to spread uh, within uh, the food industry or within in the food industry practices. So how long can it survive on different food packages? And then what's really, you know, survival is one thing, but what really is the potential, you know, if I touch a package, how much virus would transfer onto my hands? Um, so looking at that, that cross-contamination or that transfer potential of the virus. Um, and so, you know, we, we anticipate it will be really low. We certainly expect it to be very low, but there's no data to really at this point say that that 
that potential for it to cross-contaminate is, is low. Um, but that's what we're hoping to find. Yeah, that's exciting. At the beginning of this whole thing, I think everybody started wondering about once they came out with information of the virus transferring from uh, on surfaces, people were a little worried um, without a lot of information out there. The fact that food and food containers um, may spread that and, you know, do I need to spray down my stuff when I come home from the grocery store? And and that's what you're trying to do here is, is get some hard data around it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're really, like I said, it's hard to prove that something doesn't happen, but we're really looking to generate some data to, to show that, that food, uh, including something like citrus, uh, is really not a risk factor that anyone needs to worry about um, because I know it's something that people do worry about. Um, the other really interesting or, or cool thing I think about this project is, is it involves a huge um, extension position and it involves training all the way from sort of packing house employees all the way through to consumer uh, groups and interacting with you know people in retail environments. Uh, so I think that 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 communicating the risk to those groups is a really important thing, uh, and understanding how to impact the behaviors of different groups is a really important thing as well. And you mentioned that this is going to be kind of an all-encompassing thing from finding data to getting that information to the consumer with some outreach. I know that even when the CDC came out at one point and said that it likely cannot transfer on some surfaces, um, especially uh, through packaging and stuff like that, uh, it wasn't communicated very well, didn't hit the mainstreams, didn't hit the messaging to the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And one of one of our partners on the project is a professor named Ben Chapman up at North Carolina uh, State University. And his specialty really is risk communication. So to understand um, how to communicate people, these complex um, safety uh, and especially food safety in our point of view, um, um, decision making, because, you know, it's, it's not as easy always as as yes or no. Right. There's a lot that goes into feeling safe and comfortable with your food. Um, and we've seen in this pandemic that certainly that that has come forward. And we see that both, you know, from a consumer point of view. And we also see that, you know, with with trouble, with inconsistent messaging, even communicating to workers, you know, within the citrus industry. So I'm excited for it. So is this research going to be able to be transferred to other viruses like just the, the seasonal flu? Or is this very specific to COVID-19 coronavirus? Yeah, so the work being done here is is very specific to COVID-19. Um, the, the funding opportunity was sort of in, in re reactive to, to the pandemic that's going on now. You know, historically, we don't worry about respiratory viruses as foodborne pathogens. And so in the world that I work in, we, you know, I, I work very much when I talk about or disease-causing organism pathogens that I worry about, I really only focus on those caused by food uh, or caused caused you know by transmission through food um, and not not respiratory pathogens like SARS-CoV-2 uh, appears to be um, and so I think that you know certainly within within the messaging that we often put out we when we look at other foodborne viruses things like hepatitis A um, or things like norovirus right and if you've ever had norovirus you'll know because um, the projectile vomiting and diarrhea that you'll have uh, will not leave your memory. Um, that that the message maybe doesn't translate so well to that. But as we reflect, sort of because of the pandemic, on the training that we typically do related to food safety, 
We haven't trained on respiratory illnesses, uh, things like influenza that causes the flu. So I think that there is potential for translation into a respiratory virus like influenza. Um, What I will say is I think a lot of the messaging that is going out around how to prevent um, COVID-19, you know, things like cleaning and sanitizing and good hand washing, these are messages that we have shared, um, that we've been sharing as food safety professionals for years. So I think what we're hoping to see is that some of the hand washing behaviors and and increased cleaning and sanitation behaviors that are happening because of the pandemic sort of maintain themselves and may even decrease some of the foodborne illnesses we have. So I think there might be some possibility to to get um, benefits beyond just COVID-19. Well, and I, you know, at least speaking from me and my wife, I, I hope that some of that cleanliness, some of these practices that we've put into place, uh, these hygiene practices stick around a little bit after this. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, I can't, I can't push hand, proper hand hygiene and hand washing enough. So important for a lot of factors. Okay. So like I said, really exciting research here and can't wait to see what you guys uh, come out with. Uh, you guys are up and running and, and moving on this. Uh, it, it's pretty timely. So how quick do we think we'll see some uh, data from this? Yeah, so that's a great question. So this project came together really quickly. Uh, we submitted it at the beginning of June and it was funded in uh, mid-August. And the money is actually in place as of now. So we are actively moving on the project. The website went live last week. You can find it at foodcovi.net. So F-O-O-D cov.net. Um, and so the website is up and active. Uh, we have started uh, setting up the laboratory experiments as we speak, and we've already had a couple meetings of our stakeholder advisory committee. So we are actively underway and we expect to have, we're already pushing data out there um, or information out there that we have now. And we expect for nothing but a continued flow of information uh, from this in the future, um, hopefully with results coming you know, within the next six months. Again, UF IFAS food science professor, Dr. Michelle Daniluk. Dr. Daniluk, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And wrapping up our episode today, we're joined by Dr. Larry Duncan, um, nematology professor for UF IFAS. Uh, Dr. Duncan, first of all, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Taylor. Kind of a weird situation this year with all the COVID stuff going on. Uh, are you able to continue with your work uh, per normal? Yeah, we uh, we are able to uh, do that because the experiments have been ongoing now for about a year and a half. There was a lot of plumbing involved in what I'll tell you about out in the orchards that is, you know, is uh, completed and that sort of thing. So essentially what we're doing now is just continuing with some treatments and uh, taking measurements. Very good. Let's talk about the research. So uh, a little bit of, uh, we'll go broad here, general, what you're looking at. Uh, Basically, you're looking at uh, sting nematode. Tell me about what this project is and what it's looking at. So sting nematode has become a real issue for Florida growers since um, really they've been aware of it now probably for about five or six years. But when Huang Long Bing, you know, and started to infect the uh, citrus industry, uh, eventually it's, you know, it's everywhere. And for that reason, uh, growers are continually replanting non-productive groves. 
and the in the replanted groves, the young trees are highly susceptible to uh, sting nematodes. When the growers replant their young orchards, the trees grow very unevenly, and it sets them back considerably because it's an ectoparasitic nematode that feeds at the root tip. And that causes the root to stop growing so the trees don't have roots. And I think most people listening to this realize that Huang Long Bing reduces the root system in a citrus tree by about 50%. So what you're dealing with now is uh, a plant disease uh, interacting with a nematode disease to uh, to affect the root system. Yeah, so so hampering those roots uh, even more. And the history behind this is back in the 70s, uh, as you noted in your article, the, back in the 70s, um, mowing was something that was new, and the disking used to cut those roots off short. That would pretty much uh, take care of some of that end of root feeding and the fact that we don't do that anymore we're seeing it more and that was especially with these replants which we're seeing more of correct yes yeah, it's, it's something like that actually when they were disking the groves they were uh, chopping up the soil and the roots and so they were depriving the nematodes of their food and so the the nematodes out in the row middles or yeah out in the row middles and along the uh, edge of the trees where they were disking for weed control um you know, we're also reducing the sting nematode population. When they started mowing, all of the native plants uh, that grew in there tended to be hosts for the nematode. And so all of a sudden, for the first time in, in Florida's history, really, um, the row middles were just full of sting nematodes that uh, had been more or less managed by disking in the past. And so that's become an issue since really since the freezes of the 1980s is when people started to notice it, because just like now they were replanting after those freezes and they were planting on top of high population densities of sting for the first time and their trees were stunted. And uh, and so they noticed the issue and uh, it hasn't gone away. There's two things that we're looking at with respect to sting nematode. You can control the nematode in the tree row with nematicides. And in the row middles, however, it would be too expensive to use nematicides. And so there's just really, up until now, been no real effort to control the nematode in the, in the row middles. And so what happens is if you are able to get good control of the sting nematode, and it's something we're looking at, how the tree responds right now to that control, uh, because, you know, it's lost so many roots to greening, it's, it's a question still of whether it's profitable to be controlling some of these other root diseases. And so that's one of the things we're looking at. But um, the other thing is, is when the trees would get to a certain height, the growers would notice that even if they were starting to grow off, all of a sudden they would get stunted in that growth. And again, they felt that the trees were being bonsai because if you dug out in the row middles, you'd see that the root tips were all galled and, you know, had stopped growing because of the nematodes out in the middles. So essentially what we're trying to do in this experiment or these experiments that we're running is to control the nematode in the tree row with nematicides and to control it in the row middles with a non-host plant. And one, it's very fortunately, perennial peanut happens to be a non-host to the sting nematode, which is a good deal because if you get the peanut established in your row middles, you really don't have much management to do anymore because it just doesn't grow that high. At the same time, if you do mow it down, you're putting a lot of nitrogen back into the soil. So the trees, you know, the tree roots in the row middles now have a lot more nitrogen than they ordinarily did in you know, under normal circumstances where 
you've got native plants growing. So that's that's one of the things we're trying to do is to uh, deal with the nematodes in the row middles and see what that what that does to the tree growth. We'll talk a, a little bit more about that in the final question, but let's talk about the uh, the first aspect of that. Um, so you're looking at several products here. Uh, we, we're still we still need to test them. We still need to get uh, some uh, more results back. But uh, you're testing several products here to see about treating those nematodes uh, in the tree line. Yeah, and and that's an interesting uh, system, situation too, Taylor, because. You know, for the past approximately three decades or maybe four decades, there's been almost, well, virtually no nematicides, no new nematicides introduced into uh, agriculture in general. And at the same time, we've lost a lot of products, uh, especially the fumigant nematicides uh, in Florida. They're, they're just not used in citrus any longer because they were contaminating groundwater. Uh, and so what remained was a couple of products that were base, they were basically organophosphates and carbamates that affect the nervous system of the nematode. But they, it also is extremely toxic. It affects the nervous system of mammals, fish, birds, everything. And they're some of the most toxic compounds uh, you can imagine. So just recently, in the last decade, in the last approximately six to eight years, new products are coming online that represent new chemistries. And the really neat thing about these chemistries is they seem to be highly selective, not just for nematodes, but really they're more toxic to plant parasitic nematodes than to some of the beneficial ones, like the ones that kill insects or the ones that are free living in the soil and mineralizing nutrients and things like that. So they're very highly selective. They're virtually um, safe to use. They're, they're very, very low toxicity. Um, they have different modes of actions, so possibly we can be rotating them to avoid resistance. I guess there's, there's about four of them right now that we're looking at in addition to the uh, standard nematicides that we've used in the past. So the question is right now is how well do they perform right now against the sting nematode compared to the standard nematicides? And then secondly, as I've already mentioned, are the trees going to respond enough to make these treatments profitable? And some of these you are applying through the microsprinklers, right? All of these nematicides can be, well, excuse me, all but one can be applied through the irrigation system. Um, in our trial, just because of plumbing considerations and things like that, I believe four, four of them are applied through the jets, uh, and the two traditional nematicides are applied otherwise. We spray one of them on the soil while the irrigation's running, and the other one we rake into the soil. That's exciting. I, I think growers will be very interested to see those results when we, they come out. Let's go back to the peanut crop. So basically, you're putting the um, peanut plant in the middle um, and as you mentioned, the reason for that is it's, it's a non-host, right, for sting nematode, but also it doesn't grow high like some of the other ones. And you mentioned in your article, like, like hemp, and I think there's a, a couple other ones, but this, this doesn't grow high. And that's the nice thing here. It's, it's almost like a, a added benefit of a cover crop. Oh, there's no question. As far as management costs, it's going to cut the cost because you don't need to be doing much management of your middles. I think I would really just need to be mowing the peanuts to um, to let them go ahead and fix nitrogen, you know, get it into those leaves, and get those leaves back, you know, put that nitrogen back in the soil. Once it's mineralized, it's available to the plant roots, the, uh, the citrus roots that are growing out there amongst it. So, uh, yeah, that's a real benefit. And then, of course, the other thing is that 
uh, in our latest, uh, you know, we, we're measuring the sting nematode populations every month in the uh, native vegetation and in the in the peanuts, and it, it's it's reduced those populations by about 98 percent. Probably what we're seeing out in the middles now are are nematodes growing on the citrus roots exclusively. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Any any issue with getting that uh, established in the middles? Yeah, it's it's tricky to get established. There's some really beautiful. Uh, well, there's two aspects to this, I guess. There's there's some groves that when you uh, pass by them, especially when you know when they're flowering, they're just gorgeous looking down the middles as far as you can see with perennial peanut. But if you get in there and you look a little more closely, there are weeds intermixed with the peanuts. And in our plots too, I believe in about 10% of our plots that we've established, the weeds were, are, it's, they're a little weedier than the ones where that are just virtually all peanut. And the, what I described to you as the effects on the sting nematode were the all peanut plots. If they've got any weeds at all growing in them, then you're going to have uh, some sting nematode growing on those weeds. And in our case right now, it's, they're reduced by about half compared to normal vegetation growing there. Um, where we do have a, a fair amount of weeds. And so why do we have the weeds? Well, because it, it, uh, the peanut is slow to establish. It needs irrigation out in the middles. That's something that a grower would have to consider how that's going to happen. And, you know, we did it just by special plumbing. Uh, or you can, you know, be planting it out during the, uh, during the rainy season. And then it can take a number of years to establish if you're doing it from rhizomes. We set up our experiment with peanut sod in order to uh, just get things going so we could do our measurements and see, you know, see its effect. But you would never be able to afford that uh, in an orchard. So the growers that are using it um, are looking at it long term. And um, it, it is a long term proposition. I'd say probably three to four years before you really have a good stand where you're you're growing it up from rhizomes. But hey, if you can mow it down and get some added nitrogen back into the uh, soil, yeah. I think that's good uh, point. Yep. That's a that's a benefit there. Again, uh, Citrus Research and Education Center nematology professor, Dr. Larry Duncan. Dr. Duncan, thank you so much for your time. Oh, sure. Anytime. Thanks very much. And thank you for joining us for this month's All In for Citrus podcast. You can listen to this episode again or previous episodes at citrusindustry.net or simply search All In for Citrus where you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.